Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. There are so many stereotypes about Africa. Military dictators, starvation, corruption, war, disease, poverty, crime. Well, you've all read the papers. Then there are the numbers. 1.3 billion people, 20% of the Earth's land surface. But while many Europeans can hope to live on average until they're over 80, for many Africans, the average lifespan is just over 60 years. Many Africans rail against lazy, catch-all descriptions of their continent, pointing out that there are so many different African countries with very different stories, and that many Africans are experiencing change for the better, all of which provides the context of our discussion today on the future of Africa. And to discuss that rather huge topic, I'm joined by Professor James Robinson of the University of Chicago, and using both game theory and history, He's conducted influential research into political and economic development, not least on the underlying relationship between poverty and a society's institutions. He's the co-author of Why Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity and Poverty, now read in 32 languages. And away from academia, he's worked with the World Bank on development issues. So, Professor Robinson, hello to you. Hello, yes. And thanks so much for joining us. Now then, you know, there are all those stereotypes I just reeled off on Africa. Tell us how you feel when you hear those stereotypes, which you must do all the time in your line of work. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously those facts that you related are, are correct. Uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, what I've been trying to understand is, you know, I think one could point to many societies in the last 50 or 100 years uh, you know, that have experienced similarly dire economic circumstances and economic histories, but have radically transformed. You know, if you think about China in the last 40 years, if you thought about um, Vietnam kind of starting more recently, uh, other countries in East Asia, Taiwan, South Korea, you know, there have been very successful experiences of economic development from apparently very dire initial conditions and initial circumstances. So, so I think my most, most recent, although a lot of my research has been about the historical sources of underdevelopment in Africa, uh, my more recent work is trying to focus more on trying to understand, you know, is there, is there the sort of potential in Africa for that type of very rapid turnaround in economic development to take place? Right, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's just begin by, by actually going back to and I guess this would break a stereotype in a way, uh, to the time that Africa flourished. When did Africa flourish last? Well, I, yeah, that's, I mean, I think, you know, I think, I, I mean, I would say, you know, if I went back historically in Africa, you know, Africa flourished, you know, probably in different ways than, than European societies flourished. I think you know one of the things that's strikingly different historically about Africa is you don't see the emergence of these large 
centralized bureaucratic states the way you see in Asia, in China, you know, the Indus, India, Europe. You know, China, in Africa, political society stayed very small scale. The Africans were very resistant to the creation of these large centralized states. So you could say, you know, a certain type of society did flourish, a society that was free of taxation or regulation or the sort of coercion that states uh, meted out to their to their citizens or their subjects. You know, so that was a type of flourishing and there was trade, there was commerce, you know, there was less technological advance than there was in Eurasia, for sure, you know, uh, and, and, you know, other types of institutions and technologies didn't develop so rapidly in Africa. But you could say, you know, historically, Africans were trying to achieve something different. And they succeeded, you know, until, until the modern world. Success for most people would involve life expectancy, peace, stability, order, uh, law and order, rule of law. Uh, the kind of Africa you're describing, did it have those things? I think, I mean, I think, you know, the differences in life expectancy around the world, if you go back 200 years ago or 250 years ago, were very small. You know, it was about 30 years at birth and it hadn't changed very much since the days of the Roman Empire. Uh, so I don't think you'd have found much difference between Africa and, you, you, you know, Europe, Western Europe, for example, you know, in 1800 or in 1750. But, but yeah, I think yeah, there was there was law, there was there was order. You know, there was also warfare. You know, as there was in Europe, and uh, and you know, and there were differences. You know, Africa didn't develop writing. You know, for example, that's a major difference in the sense of that enormously facilitates the accumulation of knowledge and understanding of the world and technology and science and you know, so that's. That, you know, that had profound implications, you could say, in African society, you know, which were probably disadvantage disadvantageous in terms of economic development. So, but I think, you know, I think, you know, until the Industrial Revolution, these differences were pretty muted compared to what they are today. Right. So that was the crucial moment where, where I mean, would you think this is an unfair characterization? The West, through basically technological advance, shot ahead, or is that too difficult language for you, shot ahead in, in, in after, you know, during and after the Industrial Revolution? No, I think that's true in terms of labor productivity and living standards. You know, all the innovations that went along with the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, had a profound impact on people's living standards in the West. And, 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 it, and it, disseminated, it disseminated very unevenly across the world. And it didn't, it didn't disseminate that to Africa. You know, Africa... Africans still, you know, many, most Africans still can't benefit from technologies that we see as absolutely basic, like electricity, you know, or many of the public health innovations, portable water, you know, at your beck and call and sewage and sanitation, basic kind of public goods and technologies are not available to, to, to many, many, probably the majority of Africans. So that, you know, that, but, you know, but I think the reason is, is that for that, I would say, is that you know, at the time the Industrial Revolution was taking place, so were, you know, so was the slave trade, you know, so was globalization, which had very pernicious effects on Africa, you know, which was followed by colonialism and the Cold War. So just at the moment, you know, when, when Europe was expanding and surging ahead economically, Africa was subject to these enormous negative uh, shocks, I would say, and, you know, which is the prime reason why, why, you know, why it's poor in the way that you were describing to start with. And does that mean you're quite optimistic that things could go differently in the future? 
Yeah, I think I think it is reversible. You know what? What, what I I make the comparison to to, to 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 China. You know that if you if you if you were sitting in China in 1975, you know, well, what, you know, after Deng, you know, after Chairman Mao had died, and you look back at the history. You know, we were just talking about the history of Africa and the negative effects of the slave trade and European colonialism, etc. You you look back at the history of China over the previous 200 years. You'd also have told a very woeful story of technological regress, you know, uh, the collapse of the imperial state and infrastructure, the famine relief system falling apart, war, you know, warlords, civil wars, you know, uh, communist revolution, the great leap forward, the cultural revolution. You know, China was probably significantly poorer in the 1970s than it had been, you know, 100 or 150 years before that. And and so so I, you know, but 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 nevertheless. You know, underneath that, China had what I call latent assets, you know, that that there were all these sort of potential for sustained economic development in China, which it was very difficult to to kind of engage when there was so much chaos going on, you know, the chaos of Mao or whatever, or the chaos of the collapse of the imperial state. These link these assets were latent, you know, but but once a few things got in place, once Deng Xiaoping kind of reformed some basic elements of governance and the the trajectory of the, the, the society changed, then all of these latent assets could, could engage. You know, what, what, what do I mean by that? Well, I think, you know, for me, the most obvious example is, is, you know, what I call meritocracy. You know, that in China, there's a very deep history of meritocracy, going back to Confucius, even earlier, you know, the, the sort of the zoo emperors, you know, that this notion that, you know, uh, promote the worthy and talented, Confucius said, you know, that just that talent gets ahead in China and talent is recognized. And that's a heck of a principle for, for having a successful uh, capitalist economic development. And, you know, that's what you've seen since the late 1970s. But you couldn't, you know, that, that, that was sort of there, but it, it just couldn't do anything while all the chaos was happening. So we need to know about the latent assets in Africa then, because we're now getting on to the future and, and the, the, the basis of your optimism. So name for me the greatest latent asset in Africa. Well, I think, I think that's actually related to this Chinese uh, example of meritocracy, which is that, you know, in my experience and, and, and in, in, the, in the research, you know, we, we, we show a lot of data which is consistent with this, is that African society is very achievement-based, you know, in, in the sense that talent can get to the top. You know, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, what village you're from, what ethnic group you're from. You know, if you're good at your job and you can deliver, you can do things, you get to the top. So there's very rapid social mobility uh, in Africa. And th this is extremely different from South Asia with these caste systems, all the type of very unequal hierarchical society you see in Latin America, for example. So I think that that, you know, this is what I call the achievement basis of African society is terrifically powerful for entrepreneurship and innovation and economic growth. And where do you see that most in Africa? Let's now get into this business of trying to not just say Africa and, and, and think about the different parts of it and, and where assets are strongest and weakest. I think that that's exactly right. You know, as you said at the start, Africa is terribly heterogeneous. You know, there's enormous differences between, you know, place in the Sahel, like, like, you know, like Burkina Faso or Niger or Nigeria or South Africa or East Africa. I would say, you know, and, you know, this, this is what you see in the data on social mobility. There's very large differences. I would say, you know, the countries which obviously have very high rates of social mobility are Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, you know, full of entrepreneurship, uh, you know, uh, South Africa, 
you know, so so I think there's some places, I mean, the, the place that I always, you know, where I work, these ideas apply most is probably Nigeria, you know, that, yeah, there are some basic problems of governance in Nigeria. But, you know, if, if one could sort those out, that the country, you know, would explode economically. There's just so much energy and entrepreneurship and, and, and kind of acumen in Nigeria. You're saying there's talent, but yeah. at, the, at, at the moment, is there the system for that talent to rise to the top? I think in, in pockets it does. You know, there's enormous creativity, you know, Nollywood. It comes up, it, business, you know, different aspects of business. You know, Nigerians, when they get overseas, are incredibly successful economically in the United States, for example. That, you know, they're as successful as any uh, immigrant group in the United States. So I, I, think, I think, but I, I, I do think there are basic problems of governance in Nigeria that sort of impedes that flowering in some sense you know so so i think it is latent in exactly the same way that you know these things were latent in china in the late 1970s okay let's talk about a, a, another latent asset that i think you've identified which is skepticism of authority talk us through that one yeah that's that's also something you know that i experienced a lot in africa you know and i i work a lot in south america in colombia also so i always tend to compare africa with 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 Colombia, you know, or, or Latin America, and 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 you know, in Latin America, you know, or in Asia for that matter, there, there's much more faith in leaders and people. You know, this this kind of risk, kind of recurrent populism in Latin America, where people put their trust in you know leaders or redeemers, as the Mexican historian Enrique Krause calls it. And and you know, in Africa, there it isn't like that. You know, you may get stuck with some you know dictator in Gabon you know, or Uganda or whatever it is. But, and, you know, you may benefit from that if you're in the right social network or patronage, you know, network. But, but I think there's enormous skepticism. And again, you see this in, in the data towards authority. You know, Africans think that authority will be abused and, and you know, if people get the chance. And, and, and so, you know, the reason I think that's interesting, it's a sort of, you know, the political culture is much more like the type of Western political culture, you know, in the United States, for example, that built some of the world's most successful political institutions. You know, if you go back and you think about the US Constitution, you know, what was the attitude of the founding fathers of the United States? They were terribly worried about the abuse of power. They were skeptical about authority. They thought authority would be abused and they tried to design a system with that in mind. And, and it's thanks to them, you know, that, 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 you know, that we managed to get rid of Donald Trump, you know, because that was exactly the kind of scenario that Madison and Hamilton were worried about, you know, and luckily they structured the institutions in such a way that someone like Donald Trump couldn't override, you know, the, the institutions in the way that he wanted to do. I mean, he's still trying, you know, but, but, but I think, you know, and so that's very different from this Asian attitude towards power and authority. You know, there's a much more kind of submissive notion of, leaders and and kind of deference to leaders you don't see that in africa i've never experienced it so so my point is that you know it's not easy to build effective state institutions but i think africans have have the kind of attitude which 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 is consistent with really building effective state institutions you know why haven't they done that i think because they were left with such a complicated mess uh, you know at the end of colonialism the british just created this thing called Nigeria, and then they left, you know, and all the 250 different peoples had to get on with it. And, and that just takes a lot of time to try to construct legitimate, effective 
institutions. You know, that's not an easy, I'm not saying that's an easy problem to solve. I don't think it is an easy problem to solve. I think there's a lot of progress, by the way, in Africa on that problem. It's still a work in progress, but there's a lot of progress, you know, compared to 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And, you know, and, and, and my point is just that, you know, when they get there, the Africans have what it takes to build really effective, inclusive political institutions. That's the point. Okay, that's your second uh, latent asset. I'll, I'll offer some objections to these in a minute and see uh, what you make, <laughs> make of them. Uh, but just your third asset that I, I, I've read that you, you've identified, multilingualism. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cosmopolitanism, I call it. You know, I mean, one, one thing that I find very interesting about Africa is just, and I think it's one of the things that makes it so interesting to study, is how enormously complicated and heterogeneous it is. You know, most Africans that I know speak, you know, four or five languages, uh, Africans are, you know, so used to dealing with differences, different cultures, different histories, different languages. They're, they're very kind of good at operating in this, in this globalized cosmopolitan world in a way that English people aren't. You know, I'm English, you know, but English people can't even deal with the French or the European Union. You know, we have to have Brexit and get out and, you know, just be on our own again, you know, and, and so... So I find it, I find this, yeah, but the world is globalized. You can't hide from the world uh, nowadays. And I, so I find this sort of cosmopolitanism, you know, you, you know, one manifestation of that, you know, which you can look at in the data is multilingualism. You know, Africans are the, Africa, African, Africans are the least monolingual people in the world. Africans are more likely to speak more than one language than anybody else in the world. And of course, I'm not saying it's useful to speak Lingala, you know, or Swahili in New York City. It might be, or London, you know. But 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 I think what the what the the, the social psychological evidence uh, suggests is that you know multilingualism and this sort of cosmopolitanism goes along with all sorts of advantages in terms of you know how you deal with other people, seeing other people's perspective, being able to resolve conflict, and and you know. So I so I you know I think that the argument is that this cosmopolitanism of Africans, it, you know, is, it sets them up to thrive in a global world. So I'm sure you'll have heard these, uh, you know, rejoinders before, but let me put them to you and get your response. Uh, it's fine to say Nigerians have got talent, of course. Every, yeah, there are people in every society on earth who've got talent. Uh, the whole point of the uh, developing world is that that talent doesn't get to the top, and it doesn't get to the top in Nigeria, for example, because there's an elite of corrupt politicians who block the paths of more talented people beneath them. And, and, and so to say they've got talent doesn't help us at all. I, you know, I think, yeah, of course, there, there, you know, there is corruption. Uh, there is corruption in Africa. You know, every Nigerian will tell you endless stories about corruption and, you know, and, and but there's lots of corruption in China as well. You know, there's mass corruption in China. But I think the story in China is not that, you know, Corruption is a good thing, or no? Corruption is a bad thing. You know, corruption reduces incentives and it reduces economic returns. But it's overwhelmed by the basic principle of meritocracy in China, and I think that's true in Africa as well. You know, I think if you look, for example, even at you know President Buhari's cabinet, you know, you see and you ask like, where do the you know where do they come from? Okay, where what ethnic group are they? But like, delve into that and you ask like. Where did they study? What high school did they come from? Actually, every single one uh, went to a different high school. You know, it's not even true that the Fulani people, you know, who he's a, he's a Fulani person from the north. It's not even true that the Fulani people all went to the same 
school. You know, they're, they're very incredibly diverse, the background of the cabinet in his government. And why is that? I think because he wants talent. You know, he wants people. Yeah, of course, there's corruption, you know, and, you know, you make connections to powerful people. You can get monopolies, you know, uh, whatever, you know, but 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 I, you know, and I think that's true in every society. Uh, but but I think what you see in all of these East Asian countries is despite the corruption, these other principles kind of dominate. And, you know, and, and I think that that's true in Africa as well. If you sorted out a few basic problems in Nigeria, the fact that there's corruption wouldn't stop all the talent coming to the top and it wouldn't stop rapid economic growth emerging. And I guess when you talk about schools, you're sort of making the point probably of uh... You know, your, 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 your English, as you said, and, uh, you know, it is an astonishing thing that the cabinet in London, how many of them went to the same school? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I always think of Colombia also, you know, in Colombia, you know, there's three or four schools in Bogota where, you know, where, which completely dominate high politics and high and the, you know, the, the high business world. Second objection, scepticism of, of authority. Surely what we've learned in the last 20 years is that, uh, societies that have a, an authoritarian centralized system that can make efficient planning decisions that can implement that has a long-term vision not bothered by democratic change uh, that they succeed and china is the prime example and it, it simply works and uh, the skepticism of authority that uh, africa has simply doesn't work yeah i mean i you know we we talked a lot about this i you know obviously there's a connect, you know, there seems to be some connection between authoritarianism and, and, you know, but, you know, and I would say, you know, more a history of centralized state authority in these East Asian countries, you know, in Korea, in China, in Taiwan, that you don't have in Africa, you know, and I think that's obviously an advantage for some things, you know, it's obviously, it was an advantage uh, for Deng Xiaoping, that when he wanted to change society and push it in a new direction in the late 1970s, he had this history of bureaucracy and state kind of unified state authority in China that facilitated the transition. And clearly there isn't anything like that in Nigeria. I agree. But I, I you know, I think that had that has disadvantages also. I think if you look at Chinese history, what you see is that that can create periods of prosperity, but it's always limited, you know, because you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, I think like one thing that's fascinating is that Deng Xiaoping's attempt to institutionalize leadership selection, for example, has completely failed. You know, President Xi has chucked all of that out of the window. And he's now, you know, he's now consolidating a highly personalized, uh, you know, political regime based around a personality cult, you know, in the same way that Mao did. And I think if you look at Chinese history, you know how that's going to end, you know, so I would say, yes, that can help you do some things, but it's ultimately unsustainable. So, so I think, you know, yes, there's a big problem in Africa of building more effective state institutions. I, th I think you have to be very careful about what it is that states can or cannot do, uh, for example. You know, African states are very good at doing some sorts of things, and they're very bad at doing other sorts of things. So, so you know, that's something that outsiders never kind of understand you know like for example african states are very good at doing contact tracing you know like when a chap from ebola went uh, from sierra leone and he landed in lagos you know they killed the whole thing you know they basically squashed the whole business because they were so good at kind of mobilizing all these co personal connections and networks to track down all the people who 
who've been in contact with this person and isolate them, and they stop the Ebola in its tracks. You know, so that's actually state capacity of a kind of very powerful form. You know, so so that that's the sort of thing that they're actually quite good at. There's another brilliant example of like polio uh, eradication also in you know even the Taliban can do things like that. So 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 so, but but I agree that you know. So I think I would say these authoritarian models they're very good at some things, but unless you do make a transition, you know, to a more open political system like they did in South Korea, like they did in Taiwan. That is not sustainable. So I don't think the Chinese have a model of sustainable economic development. I think it's all going to my personal view, and this is what we argue in why nations fail at some length, is that you know that what Chinese history and what kind of international evidence suggests is that this is not a sustainable model of economic development, and and you know it'll end badly. And and I don't know how it will end, uh, but you know so there the Africans have an advantage that if they can build these institutions, they'll build them in a much more sustainable way than the Chinese will. Third uh, idea you you've proposed to us. Uh, let's take the multilingualism bit of the cosmopolitanism. Uh, you know, and the, the obvious argument is countries yeah. today would be talking about Afghanistan. Uh, they 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 don't have a unified linguistic culture, and that helps them fail. And that European countries that are largely got a single language, the United States, it, it, it is a force for unity and economic efficiency. I, you know, I think you just have to, you know, try to understand that. I think you have to understand that different states are built in different ways and social contracts are very different in different types of societies. You know, so I think Afghan, you know, Afghanistan you know, I'm not an expert on the history of Afghanistan, but, you know, that seems to be a country which, you know, which didn't have really a history of unified state authority in, you know, in the same way that many African societies did. There were different groups with their own cultures, their own different types of political institutions. And there have been attempts by the British and, you know, colonial powers in the 19th century by the Russians and by the US to kind of impose external models of state authority, which has always failed. You know, it's always failed in Afghanistan. And what's required is some kind of legitimate internal process of the creation of a state. You know? And then maybe that's an Islamic state also, you know, which is much more culturally relevant to that context. You know, if you look at comparable, comparable data, for example, the Pew Trust collects a lot of data on religious attitudes Afghan people in Afghanistan are like the most conservative, have the most conservative views about Islam of any people in the world in terms of the Sharia, in terms of, you know, cultural norms and practices. And, I, you know, I just think you have to recognize, you know, that may be jarring to many things we think of as, you know, rights or in the West, you know, uh, you know, it may be it's inconsistent with that. But I think you have to just accept that the state could be built in different ways, you know, and could an Islamic state create prosperity? Yeah, I think it could. You know, I mean, Islam is all about the rule of law. You know, one of the reasons, I mean, one of the arguments made by scholars about the rise of kind of, you know, Islamic fundamentalism in the last 50 years is that it's a kind of reaction to dictatorship and autocracy and the rule of men, you know, because the Sharia is is the rule of law. You know, God created the law and the role of the state is to implement it. And, and, you know, and so, so I, you know, I see the, you know, it looks strange from a Western perspective, but I think it's a culturally relevant, you know, so my own personal view is that one has to recognize that this is just the way people in the, that part of the world think about 
state and legitimate political institutions and authority. And there's no reason why you couldn't build a modern state on those grounds. It would look different from the state in Britain or the United States or Nigeria, but that, that's fine. You know, it's what would be culturally relevant and legitimate for the people in Afghanistan. And I think that could be inclusive also. You know, Islam is very inclusive in many ways. Now, is it right to say that academics have been overly optimistic about Africa in the past? There is a history of there is a history of over optimism. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you went back to the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, people were making all sorts of uh, kind of dramatic, what turned out to be dramatically incorrect uh, predictions about about African economic growth and African economic success. Uh, Paul Rosenstein Roden, who was one of the founders of developed economics, actually wrote a famous paper in the 1960s, you know, proposing that Ghana and Nigeria were going to go grow faster than Singapore and Korea and things like that. So, yes, absolutely. Why were they wrong and why are you right? Because they were looking at the wrong thing, because they had a very old fashioned economistic idea of what creates economic growth based on capital accumulation, and they weren't thinking about the institutions and the politics. I think what we've learned in the last 20 or 30 years is that it's really, you know, what generates, of course, economic growth is about capital accumulation, and it's about, you know, it's about entrepreneurship and innovation, but, but that, what, what, what that, all of those things respond to is institutions, and you have to get the politics right to get the institutions right for the economy to flourish. And Rosenstein wrote an economist. Economists still don't get that typically, you know. Uh, but so 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 I would say, you know, like, why am I right and they wrong? Well, because I'm looking at the right, I'm, I'm kind of looking at the right way to think about. I'm looking at the right type of variables to understand what really leads societies to flourish economically. Now, then, there are some things that Africa is uh, affected by that it's got yeah, nothing to do with. Uh, so, you know, the, of, often this whole debate is, suffused with an idea that Africa is somehow to blame for its situation. But there, is, there are some things which obviously it has, bears no responsibility at all for, like not being able to trade with Western powers, and like climate change, which has made very little contribution to. Will those factors actually mean that the success you, you hope for and predict will be frustrated? Because you know, the, the, the rich West is never going to let African farmers trade on an equal basis, is it? Yeah, I mean, I, that, that, you, know, you have to combat those forces. I, you know, I think I think this is, you know, this is a view that in Latin America would be associated with sort of what we used to be called dependency theory. You know, that in some sense, Latin America in the 1960s, Latin American intellectuals believed that Latin America was poor basically because the West, Western powers wanted to keep it poor. And they kind of exploited that poverty to their own advantage. I, th I think I think what we've seen in this East Asian case is, you know, you can overcome that. Th those mechanisms are there, of course, you know, uh, undoubtedly, you know, those mechanisms are there. Um, you know, rich countries want to manipulate prices in their favor. They want to manipulate markets in their favor. They want to get, you know, cheap access to natural resources that Africa has. But I think I think what you've seen in, in these East Asian experiences is that, you know, countries can 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 cope with that. You know, countries can get organized and they can you know, there's many international fora where they can use their power, you know, and I, I think that's a cumulative process, you know, African, because African countries are, you know, are, are weak economically, they're dependent on foreign aid, it's difficult to exert their power. But, but, but the, the, I think the East Asian experience shows that, that, that the, you know, that, that, that can, that can, it can happen, they can reverse that situation, they can use 
they can use their power in these international institutions to try to fight against. And after all, at the end of the day, you know, Western Western powers have created these rule-based institutions like these GATT and, you know, different types of, you know, the United Nations. And there are, you know, there's rule-based institutions that African countries can, can you know, can exploit to their advantage, you know, if, if they can organize collectively to do that. And I think that will be a fruit of the type of improvements in governance and state institutions that, you know, that we were talking about. Just say I find all this quite refreshing because it is easier to be pessimistic than optimistic. I think <laughs> so. This is good to good to hear. But uh, let me put to you an issue that I suspect you'll have difficulty uh, putting a positive gloss on from Africa's point of view: <laughs> cli- climate change. Yeah, I think I think we're all. I you know I I'm not sure I really understand myself. You know what 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 the economic implications of climate change are going to be. You know I think you know you certainly see negative effects of that uh, in, in West Africa. You know, this desertification leads to migration, you know, it leads to conflict, it leads to, you know, conflict over resources. And I, you know, I think that that could certainly be, that could certainly be the case, but I'm not sure I'm enough of a scholar of the likely consequences of climate change to really understand, you know, I mean, you know, one of, the, you know, I, I, I mean, it's very typical to kind of, claim that Africa is poor, you know, because because of adverse, you know, geographical or climatic factors. You know, when, when I when I started, when I finished my PhD and started, uh, you know, being a researcher, uh, the main conventional wisdom in economics about why Africa was poor was due to Jeffrey Sachs. You know, Jeffrey Sachs said Africa is poor because it's close to the equator and there's malaria and it's tropical and tropical countries are condemned, you know, to poverty. And I found this so utterly ludicrous, you know, that it actually spurred some of the early research I did to show that that actually just wasn't true, kind of empirically at all, like that just the data just doesn't support that idea. So I'm sort of used to, to negative kind of geographical arguments about Africa. And I, you know, I, I always tell students when I teach that, you know, when I, I mean, again, I'm not a student, I'm not a scholar of climate change, so this could all be wrong, you know, and, and it's difficult. I agree with you that it's difficult to think of something positive about climate change. But I also think, you know, if you think about the history of humanity, the history of humanity is not a history of human beings succumbing, you know, to adverse geographical circumstances. You know, it, it, it's, it's a history of innovation and adaptation and overcoming ecological and environmental constraints, or you know, on 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 the flourishing of human societies. So, 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 if I wanted to say something optimistic, I'd say that you know exactly how that's going to pan out in the context of climate change. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's very interesting that you've also studied Latin America. So, when you think of the future of Latin America and the future of Africa, how do those futures differ, and why? Oh, I think I think the future of Africa is much more dynamic and I'm much more optimistic about Africa than I am about Latin America. I think Latin America for hundreds of years has been trapped in this enormously kind of inegalitarian, hierarchical, uh, you know, system. Uh, I think there's a few places, you know, which are interesting. I think Bolivia is very interesting. You know, I think what you've seen in Bolivia in the last 20 years is a kind of emancipation of indigenous people and an empowerment of indigenous people in a way that was kind of previously unimaginable. And also you see new identities, you know, new things. So, if, you know, if I, it, like in, if you go to Peru, for example, you know, if you look at high politics in Peru now, and I don't just mean, you know, President Carrillo, you know, the new president who's, who's you know, who's, 
who's what in Peru they would call a cholo, you know, a, a kind of mestizo, a kind of mixture of indigenous and Western. And, you know, and, and so there's a lot of social change in some parts of Latin America, which I would be, you know, if you wanted me to be optimistic, I'd actually point to that and say there's new identities and there's a sort of empowerment of indigenous people you know, in some parts of Latin America, that's not true in Guatemala, for example, you know, or, or, you know, but, but the general picture, I think, is of this very perverse and ingrained, uh, you know, uh, model of inequality and, and, and hierarchy, and, you know, which is deeply embedded in the society and the way institutions think. And, you know, I always say, I had to give a talk in South Africa for the World Bank a couple of years ago about the, their policy called black economic empowerment. And I sort of compared South Africa to, to Latin American, you know, countries like colonial societies, white settler colonies, Europeans come, they steal all the land, you know, it's a bit like Latin America, but, but the difference between South Africa and Latin America is that in, in, in South Africa, it's all happened recently enough so that you can kind of analyze it and you understand what happened and you can actually kind of, see what the problem is. You know, in Colombia, you can't see what the problem is, you know, because it's so socialized, you know, for hundreds of years, it's very difficult to disentangle yourself from the problem. I think, you know, so I was telling the South Africans that they have a big advantage over the Colombians, you know, because you, 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 you know, the problem is just much more recent and you can see what caused it and how to solve it. And the Colombians can't see how to do that. So I, I'm much more optimistic about, about Africa than I am, than I am about Latin America. And I suppose the point that backs up what you're saying there is that South Africa did change it. And, and Absolutely. Yeah, and they are and they are changing it. They're trying to reverse the inequities of apartheid, albeit imperfectly with corruption and and you know, and and but there's a systematic attempt to kind of create a very different type of society in South Africa, you know, which 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 is sort of unimaginable in, in Latin America. When you think of the future of Africa, what role will foreign aid play and is it a negative or a positive force? I, I, my general view is it's, it's pretty marginal to what's important. You know, I don't think anything, you know, important in Africa is connected to foreign aid. You know, I think foreign aid can do good things. It can put a roof on the school, you know, it can build a well, uh, you know, it, you know it, it can do good things, you know, or it can disappear down a hole, a black hole of corruption. And, you know, but I, my general feeling is that it's pretty marginal, you know, it's not really the issue in terms of, you know, whether Africa is going to succeed or not, you know, not succeed. I find these, these claims about, you know, how foreign aid, like this dead aid book, for example, I find that sort of ludicrous. I've never seen any evidence that would convince me that the problems in Africa are caused by aid. So I don't think that's true, but I don't think aid is the solution either. You know, the Africans will find the solution with or without aid, I would say. To what extent is the colonial legacy still affecting Africa's future? And it, 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 yeah, are we getting to the point where it, it, it's just less important? I think it's less important. I mean, I, you know, for me, the biggest legacy of colonialism was, you know, as we were discussing earlier, this, this creation of these kind of arbitrary nation states, uh, you know, which left a heck of a difficult political problem for post-colonial uh, elites and, you know, and, 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 and all sorts of different improvisations and different models of how to do this, you know, Nkrumah and Nereri had one model and Mobutu had a different model and, you know, they had a, and Sierra, they had a different model in Sierra Leone. I mean, there was all sorts of improvisations and creativity actually in trying to come up with models of 
how to cope with this. But I, it was just a very difficult problem to to deal with, you know. And but I think that's yeah, that's that's that you know that you see lots of progress. You know, you see progress in Nigeria, in Sierra Leone, in Ghana, in Kenya. You know, there is of course there's sometimes it's you know it's two step forwards, one step backwards. But but I think there is you know there's progress in South Africa and and so 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 I think that that did create this very negative political problem that Africans have had to cope with. Uh, but I think that, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of decompressing from that, I would say. I mean, you know, it, that's, that's not true everywhere. You know, you still have Chad or Gabon or whatever, you know, but, but in general, you see, you see that I think I would say that legacy is, 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 is withering away. It would perhaps be interesting to compare the next issue I'm just going to raise with, with Latin America again. What what role will women play in the future of Africa? And is there a distinction, for instance, between Africa and Latin America, or maybe uh, East Asia? Oh, topic? I think I, I think absolutely. You know, if I was going to elaborate on uh, that latent assets, uh, I would actually say, you know, that that the power of women in Africa is, you know, it, it is, and, and you know, this is uh, this is actually something I'm studying in Nigeria at the moment. You know, if you if you ever if you've been in southern West, it's not just Nigeria, but all over West Africa in Cote d'Ivoire or, or, or Sierra Leone or Ghana, women are terrifically empowered. They're empowered economically. They run the markets. You know, they're very empowered politically. And, you know, African, nearly every African language, for example, they don't have gendered pronouns. You know, there's no he and she, you know. So there's a kind of fundamental way in which Africans don't make all these gender distinctions that uh, people do in Western uh, society. So, so actually, I think that you know, African women are very empowered in many spheres of life in a way that Western women have only just kind of got to in the last few decades. So, so I think women will play a very powerful role. And there's actually many things to learn from the from the history of of, of kind of women from you know, well, not just the history, but but the contemporary reality of women's role in African society. Which is very would be very empowering, you know, for women everywhere in the world. So just a, just a couple of general questions to, to finish with, and I hope they don't repeat what we said earlier. But given your optimism, are you clear on why it's not working, you know, in many parts of Africa? And you say they've got these great assets, and yeah, we, you've talked about corruption. Well, there's corruption in lots of places, and you you've talked about. Uh, you know, some bad governance. Well, that happens, you know, in, in, in many other countries. What is it about Africa that, that, that causes the lack of growth? I think it's, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing we talk about in Why Nations Fail. It's what, you know, there is still large elements of extractive institutions, extractive political institutions and extractive economic institutions. There's been pro a lot of progress in terms of building more inclusive political institutions in parts of Africa, not, not everywhere, as I say, you know, not Chad or Gabon or Equatorial Guinea, but, but, but in many places. And, and, you know, and, and, and that, that, you know, and that, that has to lead to more inclusive economic institutions, you know, so I think, you know, I think if you have been in Africa, you know that, or Nigeria, for example, you know that there's still basic problems of order and public good provision that still have to be Resolved, you know, the political systems need to be more accountable, and they need to build strength and state institutions. So I don't think 
you know, these problems of governance still remain. And that's why, you know, that's why that's why you don't see this very rapid economic growth in in Africa. I mean, you do see rapid economic growth in some parts of Africa. There's been very rapid economic growth in Rwanda and Ethiopia. You know, but I think those are both cases where, you know, again, there isn't really a sustainable uh, political model underpinning. You know, you see that now what's happening in Ethiopia, you know, the kind of political model that underpinned that economic growth for 20 years is just falling apart, you know, uh, as we speak. And in Rwanda, it's not falling apart, but, you know, but it's it's a very autocratic uh, model of of uh, of development that I don't I wouldn't think is sustainable either if you think about the history of Rwanda. So 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 you know, but again, Africa is a continent. You know, there's lots of things going on as you know as yeah. we mentioned earlier. So I think that's that's the basic story. You know that 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 these institutions are still in transition and they haven't got to where they need to be yet. Yeah. So so it's it's, it's you're basically saying governance, right? In some parts of Africa, in those parts of Africa where there's a lack of progress, it can often be explained by poor governance. So why? Is Africa experiencing poorer governance than, let's say, East Asia? Well, I think I think you know I think there's terrible governance in parts of East Asia, you know, in the Philippines or Myanmar or whatever, you know. So so it's it, even there, it's it's a kind of you know it's a. I mean, I you know that's a that's a deep historical question. I'd say you know that has something to do with colonialism. Clearly, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that you know this East Asian miracle was. Uh, focused on societies, you know, like uh, Japan or Korea or China, which were never colonized by Europeans. You know, they were never colonized and they never suffered many of the adverse effects of European colonialism. And I think Africa, I think, you know, that's that's a kind of big fact, which I think is pretty significant. And I think, you know, Africa is still, you know, it's still getting itself out of that, as we said. And when you look ahead, what worries you most? Yeah, you're 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 going yeah you're going against the consensus with this. When you set set your book down, having just written all this stuff, what's in the back of your mind thinking? Uh, this is the one thing that could go wrong with my optimism. What's the one factor you most worry about for Africa? Gosh, it's not it's not it's not corruption. You know, I don't, that's not that's not the one factor. I do think that that you know there is this politicization of these differences, you know, which again is very different in different parts of Africa. You know, like I think one, one, you know, something that affected me a lot is that, you know, I worked so much in Sierra Leone and in Sierra Leone, these ethnic distinctions are, you know, really muted, you know, people don't talk about it, you know, people intermarry, you know, it's, it's a very kind of, you know, it's a, it's a very, you know, it's a very, very cosmopolitan place, Sierra Leone, but in Nigeria, you know, you see these, politicization of these identities, Fulani identities, you know, or Southern identities, and that's happened in Kenya. And I don't think that's really a reflection of African life in my experience. It's just a reflection of perverse political incentives in the same way that, you know, Hitler politicized distinctions between Jews and Germans and whatever it was, you know, in the 1930s. You know, uh, and and you know, and with to, with terrible uh, consequences. That I guess that's the thing that worries me. This I don't see Africans like that. You know, one of my kind of things that I fundamentally disagree with is this obsession that social scientists have with ethnicity in Africa. Because Africans have like lots of different identities, in my experience. You know, one of which is ethnic. You know, but but there are many different sorts of identities in Africa. But this that that's one thing that worries me, you know, uh, this this politicization and, and the consequences, the negative consequences that can 
have. I, I don't think like that affects the way I think about the big picture, but obviously it can have very negative short-run effects, as we saw in Kenya and you know, politicization of this distinction between Luo and Kikuyu people. For example, in Nigeria, you see this politicization of Fulani and non-Fulani identities in you know, you saw that in South Africa, you know, during apartheid, you know, there was enormous, the white government attempted to sort of politicize differences between Zulu, Zulu and Hossa people. And, you know, and so, so, so I think that's, it's this manipulation of ethnic identities, the political manipulation of ethnic identities that, that worries me. But I, 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 I only in the short term, you know, I, I think that's something that Africans can deal with because they have such flexible and, and, and you know such a multitude of identities but but so i don't think that's gonna that doesn't for me that doesn't undermine my optimism but it's certainly something that i worry about in terms of short run very negative consequences thank you so much for talking to us about your ideas about the future of africa my, my pleasure